The time is now. Volume 3, episode 45, we are back. I am Mike Schmidt, your host of Employment Law Now, the vice chair as well of our Labor and Employment Department here at Cozen O'Connor. Ladies and gentlemen, it is the summer. Every year we have taken a bit of a hiatus here at Employment Law Now Central, primarily for work-related scheduling reasons, and so we just had ours for 2019. I can't tell you how many emails I have gotten, um, and that's really only because I've forgotten how many, but I have gotten a whole bunch of emails from people saying, Mike, are you done with your podcast? Are you coming back? What's going on? And I really appreciate all of it. Made me feel wanted, made me feel special, yada, yada, yada. But yes, uh, I was never planning on going away. As I said, we do a little hiatus uh, each year, and uh, we've just come off of ours. But we are back, right smack here in the middle of the summer of 2019. Um, And uh, I'm really excited to get going for the last half of 2019. A little strange to say that. I feel it was just New Year's. Certainly, I feel like it was just Memorial Day. Uh, And here we are, smack, as I said, in the middle of the summer, in the middle of July. It's starting to feel like the summer. It's hot out there. Uh, Maybe your sports teams are doing well. Maybe they're not doing well. Who knows? But buckle up because we are back and we've got lots of things happening, lots of things to talk about, um, all kinds of trends, all kinds of cases uh, over the next few shows. And oh, by the way, I've got all kinds of great guests for you for the second half of 2019. To mark my return here to Employment Law Now, we're going to get started with uh, a two-part series here this week, two episodes. Um, Today's episode is going to be part one of two, and I want to talk about just a few interesting developments and cases. Later on this week in part two, I'm going to be bringing on one of my colleagues from here at Cozen O'Connor to talk about the very significant EEO1 component two information that employers need to disclose to the government by the end of September. So... If you haven't been thinking about it, if you're not sure whether you were supposed to be or are supposed to be dealing with this EEO1 component 2 stuff, if you've never heard of it before, maybe you have. Maybe you've been working on it, but you want just a little bit of a refresher to make sure you're doing it all right. This is the episode later this week, part 2 of this two-part return that you're not going to want to miss. But as I said today, I just want to kick things off a little bit with a few items to bring to your attention. So let's get started with our Trending Now segment. 
And I told you before the summer started that uh, the United States Department of Labor has gone back to issuing opinion letters. It's a really good way for people to do some research into the Department of Labor opinion letters so you can get the department's interpretation and thoughts on really significant matters. And in some cases, if you and your company want to do so, it's a great way for you to uh, identify a set of facts and get the department's interpretation that you can then rely on and perhaps even use as a defense if you're ever sued on that same issue. A couple of caveats, of course, go along with these opinion letters. Um, you can't do them, you can't ask for them uh, if you're involved in a current litigation or if the department's involved in a current investigation of your company on a particular issue. It's also worth noting that the opinions that are given by the department are based exclusively on the particular facts that are presented in the letter requesting uh, a Department of Labor opinion. And right before this past July 4th holiday, uh, the Department of Labor issued uh, a couple of interesting new opinion letters. The first one uh, has to do with the calculation of regular rate of pay and overtime calculations, and we keep talking about that issue, right? It's a hot issue. People still tend to get confused. You think, well, it should be easy to figure out what one's rate of pay is, and then you just do time and a half of that for hours over 40. But those of us who have been doing this for a long time know that it's really never that simple and you have terms of art, you have all kinds of issues um, that you have to consider. Um, so here in this opinion letter, as I said, issued right before the July 4th holiday weekend, the Department of Labor was dealing with non-discretionary bonuses, non-discretionary bonuses that were based on work performed during multiple work weeks and they were being paid by the employer at the end of the bonus period. The Department of Labor says that those kinds of non-discretionary bonuses do not require the employer to retrospectively recalculate the employee's regular rate of pay if the employer is paying a fixed percentage bonus that simultaneously pays overtime compensation also due on the bonus. In other words, if the non-discretionary bonus already includes a calculation for the required overtime for that period, you don't, don't then have to go back and recalculate the employee's regular rate of pay for the weeks that are included, the weeks that are considered as the bonus period. So to sum up, if an employee's bonus is not tied to straight hours or overtime hours that are actually worked, the employer must, after paying the bonus at the end of the bonus period, the employer must go back and recalculate the regular rate of pay for each work week that was included in the bonus period and then pay the additional overtime compensation that was due. But if the non-discretionary bonus is tied, the amount of it is tied to straight hours or overtime hours that are actually worked, and the overtime compensation formula was considered and was included in that bonus payment, then you don't have to go back and retroactively recalculate um, the regular rate again for each work week because you have effectively already considered and paid the required overtime. So the takeaway is, and I don't know if you're on your treadmill, if you're in your car, at your desk, or, and you didn't get all of that down and jot all of that down, you could certainly rewind this episode 
hear me say that three, four, five, six times. The takeaway really is that unfortunately it still is not always so easy to just establish bonus plans, and it's certainly not always so easy to decide and calculate how much we have to pay X individual, Y individual, based on the hours that he or she works. So it's real important that you as a company review the impact that bonuses may have or different forms of compensation, commissions, whatever they are, to review the impact of those on employees' overall compensation and whether you are complying with wage and hour rules on the federal level and on the state level. The second interesting uh, Department of Labor opinion letter uh, tackles another complicated but very frequent question that we hear all the time, and that is about rounding. And the interesting thing about this rounding issue, whether your software, whether you can round up, whether you can round down when you're calculating the hours that an employee works in a particular week, What's interesting about the issue to me is that when, when all of this started, we didn't have all of this great technology. We didn't have these uh, terrific new software programs that can calculate right to the .0000 decimal um, when figuring this out. You historically were relying on maybe paper sign-in sheets, and the whole point of the rounding principle, I think, was to uh, ease the administrative burden because it was not always so easy when you have a significant number of employees in particular to calculate to the second or to name your decimal point. But now that you have all of these uh, great software programs, technology is what it is, is it really that much of a problem? Is it really that much of an administrative burden for your company to calculate accurately how much somebody has worked and then to pay and compensate that individual appropriately and lawfully? Well, notwithstanding technology and, and all the software that is available, um, the Department of Labor still takes the position that rounding in some cases is still okay. And so also right before the July 4th weekend, um, you had a situation where a particular organization used payroll software to calculate employee wages based on the recorded time entries when an employee clocked in and out. The software, in this case, converted the recorded time to a numerical figure in decimal form, and it converted it in six places. So, for example, or two six places, I should say. So, for example, if you had an employee work seven hours and 30 minutes, that was converted to a decimal of 7.500000. Again, six decimal places. So 7 hours, 30 minutes became 7.500000. What the software did was that it rounded the number back to two decimal points from the six decimal points for purposes of being able to pay the employees. So if the third decimal was less than 0 .005, the second decimal stayed the same. If it was more than 0 .005, the software would round up by another hundredth. And so what the Department of Labor reminded us in this opinion letter was that rounding is common and is acceptable still as long as doing so, quote, will not result over a period of time in a failure to compensate employees properly for all the time that they have actually worked, end quote. 
The Department of Labor has also reminded us that its policy continues to allow rounding either to the nearest five minutes, the nearest tenth of an hour, quarter of an hour, or a half of an hour, as long as it averages out. So your rounding policy and your rounding software has to be neutral on its face, and over a period of time, a reasonable period of time, it can't just go to the company's benefit. In other words, you can't just have a situation where, oh, what a coincidence, you keep rounding down so that all of the employee's time is not being compensated over that period of time. Yes, will rounding up, rounding down for some weeks, for some period of time, result in uh, uh, the employer's benefit? Yes, but when you're looking at a sample size, a reasonable sample size period of time, it has to average out so that the rounding up, the rounding down, ultimately over a period of time cannot simply go to the employer's benefit. It has to average out so that ultimately the employees are properly paid and fully paid for all of the time they have actually worked. So the good takeaway here is that the Department of Labor on the federal level is still recognizing rounding policies uh, as being appropriate and acceptable. But if you are engaged in those policies, if you do have software that has rounding practices, you just might want to make sure um, that you are doing things, the software is doing things appropriately. You don't want to be in a situation where you have a common software question that leads to a large class or collective wage and hour action. Third for today is um, uh, a noteworthy now segment. A noteworthy now segment. We are continuing to see an expansion uh, in the world of disability and disability law, right? And one of the areas that we continue to hear a lot about is in the area of obesity. Now, the Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit, uh, and for those of you keeping score at home, the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals covers uh, employers in Illinois, Indiana, and Wisconsin. The Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit just sided with other federal circuits in ruling that obesity in and of itself is not a protected disability unless there is some underlying physiological disorder or condition. Um, I like to call this, you still need to prove disability plus. So even though we know that the Americans with Disabilities Act has broad language, it is being required that courts interpret it more broadly um, and even though more conditions are being covered and included as disabilities under the Americans with Disabilities Act the ADA a condition like obesity is still not being considered in and of itself a disability absent evidence that there is some physical or mental impairment and impairment in turn requires some underlying physiological disorder or condition so what we do have is the definition of impairment, um, unlike the definitions of substantially limit or major life activity, both of which have been interpreted uh, and defined more broadly, the definition of impairment has not, so says the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals. And so you cannot just rely, if you are an employee, on the fact that you are obese to be protected under the ADA absent evidence that you have some physical or mental impairment which requires an underlying physiological disorder or condition. Uh, I will tell you though that while that may be good news certainly for the Seventh Circuit and the other circuits that have followed the Second Circuit as well New York and uh, Connecticut um, but like always 
don't just rest on the laurels of federal law and federal interpretation. More and more we're seeing these issues taken up on the state level, in some cases the local city level as well. Um, and in many of those cases, you have state and local laws that are much broader, much more pro-employee than even the federal law tends to be. So this is an area worth watching, uh, this area of how courts are considering obesity, how courts are considering other kinds of conditions um, as being protected or not protected under the Americans with Disabilities Act as a disability. Finally, for today, we go back to uh, another trending now segment, uh, and let's talk about hair discrimination. Because, again, this is something that I think you've probably been hearing a little bit about, maybe reading a little bit about. California, very recently, became the very first state to ban discrimination based on one's natural hair. Now, to be clear, an employee is not protected generally if the employer doesn't like that you wear a ponytail or, uh, or that you, you know, have certain hair gel in your hair um, or that the employee has a particular hairstyle on a particular day. But the California law recognizes that to prohibit race-based race discrimination, you must also prohibit discrimination based on traits that historically are associated with race. And one such example is hairstyle, such as afros, twists, locks, certain kinds of race-based or hairstyles that are traditionally associated with a particular race, such that making decisions based on an employee with that hairstyle is essentially making a discrimination deci or decision based on that individual's race. We talked a little bit about this last February when it came to New York City, but as I said, California just became the first state to do it, and lo and behold, Governor Cuomo just this summer signed into law a very similar law making New York State the second state to do it. So now we're going to add to our list of protected classes natural hairstyles. The takeaway here is I think obvious. Being in human resources or operating a business with employees it requires you to take whatever measures necessary to be on top of the changing laws and the changing trends when it comes to labor and employment law because it impacts your policies and your practices and these things are changing every day these things are changing every week it impacts these changes impact your policies your practices and not just the written manuals and written handbooks that you're tucking in a drawer it also must impact the training that you must do for those who interact with your employees because they're the ones who are in the trenches with your employees. They're the ones who need to know what they can say and can't say, can do and can't do. It's not enough for the business executives and the HR people and in some cases the senior managers and supervisors to listen to this podcast and know that we might be in a jurisdiction where you can't discriminate against one's natural hair. That's not enough. Because the frontline manager, the frontline supervisor, maybe even the coworker who doesn't know that may say something or may do something that adds the risk of liability and exposure to your company and ultimately to your bottom line when you're faced with a lawsuit for doing or saying the wrong thing. So real important to stay on top of these things, and I hope to continue to help you to do that here at Employment Law Now. 
that is all the time we have for part one but don't fret because just in a few days this week we're going to be coming back with part two to talk about the very important EEO1 component two information that many of you should have been thinking about and should be getting ready to provide by the end of this coming September. Continue to send your emails, continue to send me messages. What do you want to hear about? Are there particular issues? Are there particular trends or types of cases that you want me to talk about and analyze? Are there particular guests that you want to hear from on this podcast? I'm doing this not only because I like doing it, but because I'm hopefully helping some of you out there uh, stay educated when it comes to labor and employment issues. So I'd love to continue to hear from you. Until the next time, thank you so much for continuing to listen to me, and I hope all of your labor is productive.